Well, good morning, uh, Manitoids. I said Manitoids strangely, didn't I? Manitoids, New Life Manitoids. It's good to see all of you. Hugs all around. I love the community. Um, yeah. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles or load on your phones. The book of Amos is where we are. We're in our third week of exploring um, what's frequently called the Minor Prophets. The ancient church called it the book of the Twelve. Um, you've got um, incredible little bookmarks on, the, uh, on your seats. Go ahead and grab that too. Take it home with you. It actually gives you a reading guide. These are um, called minor because they are small. They're short. And so if you want to keep up and read with us, Read the Bible as Christians. Oh, it's amazing. Um, you can do that and you can know where we are we're in our third week. And so we're in the third prophet of the book of the 12, Amos. While you're loading that up, turning there, uh, many of you know my uh, daughter, uh, Daphne. She uh, just recently turned five. Um, but even, I know, I know, look at that self-indulgent of me. Woohoo! for my daughter. Um, but <laughs> she is, um, she would fool you. She's not, um, she's actually, she just got a costume, or, um, Officer Judy Hopps from Zootopia um, costume. And it is uh, for seven and eight-year-olds. And she uh, just turned five, but she's pushing through like the seams of it. She's like just outgrowing. It's too short on her. She's like in the 90th or 95th percentile in like height charts. Kid is super tall. And so even though she's really young, she's already been complaining about a pain that many of us are familiar with. We experience at some point in our life, um, this deep aching pain in the bones and in the muscles. We all know what kind of pains these are. These are growing pains, of course, of course. Not the one with Kirk Cameron. Um, if you don't know who Kirk Cameron is, consider your... Never mind. Uh, so... Um, but I, I'm just going to keep going. Um, it's crazy when a kid starts feeling these pains, how quickly they can grow. Did you know that some kids can actually grow like half an inch over the course of like one night? Uh, it's crazy. They've got this like measured and verified. Um, but my point in saying all of this about Daphne is actually about today, um, that growth is painful, Growth is painful <laughs> when we're even just like on a physical, biological level. And before we dive into the prophet Amos today, um, I just want to say that these are prophetic words that are going to be making all of us uncomfortable, like me included, I'm with you in this, make me uncomfortable. And so I just want to name a reality this morning, that becoming like Jesus involves growing pains, discipleship often involves discomfort. So if, you're, uh, if you find yourself like uncomfortable or squirming or uh, by the prophet's uh, words this morning, um, we might not be doing something wrong. We might be doing something right as Christians. We might be. And so let's lean in as we're engaging the prophet's words because they're going to be making all of us uncomfortable. And that's not a bad Thing. As anybody who can, who's like started exercising, who's gone from like couch to 5K can tell you, you know, as you're starting to like work muscles that haven't been worked before, it's like you, feeling the burn is a good thing. That means that like growth is happening, change is happening. And so we're going to be feeling a little bit of like change and growth happening this morning, but it's not going to be like on our muscles. It's going to be like in our heart and our soul and our mind. Sound good? 
Sound good? You guys with me? Okay. Warning you. It's fair warning. Amos chapter 1, verse 1. Let's start. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw. He saw the words um, of... um, Oh, the shepherds he saw. Um, He saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, Yahweh, the Lord, all capital letters right there. (laughs) The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. (laughs) So the grass is crying. And the top of Carmel withers. So like you've got this mountain Carmel withering up. It's shriveling. Amos, let's pause right here. Amos is the third um, book of the book of the 12 and he's coming out like guns blazing and he's picking up imagery that's actually been in the, um, the other two prophets the, that we've talked about before. The imagery of a lion, of roaring, is actually imagery that was first uh, introduced in the middle of the book of Hosea of Yahweh is like this lion who tears apart his people so that he can heal them. And then um, it's actually picked up at the end of last week. The book of Joel ends with this imagery of Yahweh roaring like a lion. And this is how Amos starts. The God of Israel, Yahweh roars. And what's he doing? He's about to. If you've got like a paper Bible, you can look in chapter one and partway through chapter two. Um, He's confronting the nations is what he's doing. And this is actually the way that the book of Joel ended. It promised that God, the God of Israel, the roaring lion, would gather the nations into a particular valley and he would confront evil in the world. And this is exactly how Amos begins. These prophets go together. So the lion of the God of Israel is roaring his disapproval about the way that the world is behaving in chapter one through chapter two. And this actually reads, if you're looking at it, and if you just skim through it or read it afterwards or whatever, it actually, it's got like a rhetorical flair to it. It sounds like the kind of thing that you could actually, like somebody could give a speech. Somebody could get up and just say these words. It's, um, it's something you can imagine Amos, the prophet, Israel, uh, Yahweh's prophet, wandering into Samaria or into Bethel or wherever in the northern kingdom and actually just saying a crowd starts kind of gathering around him as he begins denouncing. You can see it in verse 3, verse 6, verse 9. He's denouncing the nations around God's people. He has, he's calling them out for like the worst kind of human atrocities like violence and slave trade and treachery and fratricide which is like killing your brother and then desecrating the dead and then murdering the pregnant. Welcome to church, by the way. <laughs> it's like, welcome to New Life Manitou. We're just reading the Bible here. Um, we, can, we can imagine the crowd that's gathered around the prophet saying, yeah, amen, preach, because it's always nice when someone else is getting called to the carpet, isn't it? He's like calling them out, Damascus and Gaza, Tyre and Edom, Ammon and Moab, all of you guys, every, and everyone's been counting as he's been denouncing them. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, and then everyone kind of holds their breath a little bit because rhetorically, it's about to reach a climax. Who's going to be the seventh? Who's going to be the seventh person denounced? Verse 4 of chapter 2 gives us the answer. It says, thus says Yahweh, for three transgressions of 
Judah. And for four, and the crowd goes wild. There you are. Yes, preach. Amen. Say it again for the people in the back. Because by this, that's not them. That's not the crowd around him. By, the time, by this time in Israel's history, the 8th century BC, the kingdom, the great kingdom of David and Solomon has been fractured. It's been broken. And Judah is the name of the two tribes down here in the south. It's actually where Amos came from. Tekoa is where he's come from. It's like somebody wandering in from Kansas City, wandering into Broncos country, and then making a speech about the NFL and saving the best for last. And then he, like, surprisingly, the guy from Kansas City says, let's talk about how terrible the Chiefs are! Yeah! And everybody goes crazy. Did I do the sports metaphor right? Did somebody tell me? Okay. I got a thumbs up from Kurt in the back. Everyone's going crazy. They all agree that those two southern tribes Benjamin and Judah, and with their terrible, stupid capital in Jerusalem, they're the worst. Yes, everybody is stretching and smiling, getting ready to go. It sure is fun when the other team gets called to the carpet. It sure is fun when the other political party gets denounced, isn't it? It's sure nice when another religion starts getting trash-talked. But Amos, son of a gun, he has an eighth in his pocket. And he's coming, gunning for the Broncos, too. He's like, he's got hard words for the ten northern tribes that he's talking to. And so is this likely to be well-received, this sucker punch that you're like, no! In fact, by the time we get to the, you can flip, you don't have to, it'll be up here on the screen. By the time you get towards the end of the book of Amos, you get a, we get a tiny sliver of narrative of how this is received. Chapter 7, verse 12, and Amaziah, this is the, the priest of the king. He's like a representative. He says to Amos, O seer, prophet, flee, go, flee away to the land of Judah. Go back down south, eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy up here at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Like, go back to Kansas City. We don't want you here. You're saying unpopular things. You're saying uncomfortable things. You're things that challenge us, and we're not going to listen. And in this moment, where the ten northern tribes of Israel say, we do not want uncomfortable words, in effect, the northern kingdom is saying, we do not want to be God's people. And they won't be. The ten northern tribes actually dissolve and get assimilated into the, and the line goes through Judah and Benjamin. Listening to uncomfortable words is central to becoming God's people. That's like, that's what we do. And I confess, I confess it for me, brothers and sisters, it's hard for me to lean into uncomfortable words. It's hard for me to listen to um, those who vote differently than me. It's hard for me to listen to people who have experienced this world or this life or this country or this church differently from me. It's easier for me to stay in an echo chamber, to, uh, to only follow people on social media who agree with me, with, to only watch cable news shows that, that are like me and reinforce what I already think, and to demonize those people who disagree with me, even about really important issues. Oh, seer, go! Flee away! That's what we say, don't we? 
But our calling is at stake. Our calling is at stake, is what the prophets say. I cannot love until I learn to listen. I cannot. I can't do it. We cannot be the people of Jesus, the people of self-giving love, if we refuse to listen to those who disagree with us. <laughs> no matter how uncomfortable it makes us, or if we refuse to listen to the words of the prophet, or the, the word of scripture to reshape us. Are you with me? Okay, and now, so we're all on pins and needles now. What in the world does he say to the northern kingdom? Good grief. I mean, he's just announced Judah, the southern tribes. Apparently, they've rejected Torah, God's instructions, completely. And the six surrounding nations, they're getting charged with, like, war crimes. Gosh, what, what on earth has the north done to make this list? Verse 6, thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord, for three... For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And, the, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And so right here, he's just leveled like one charge at the rest of the nations. But like now Amos levels off seven charges against the people of the north, against Israel. And they um, all boil down to the same one thing. They are not taking care of the vulnerable among them. In fact, they're doing the opposite. Maybe in polite ways. Maybe in just overlooked, neglected ways. They are quietly oppressing them. The poor are getting trampled in the dust, is what it says. Verse 7 says that the same girl, it's almost certainly a serving girl, is what's being, somebody who's just like trying to scratch out a living, is actually being taken advantage of by, the, by a father and his son. Like the poor who have to give, their, they don't have anything else to give, and so they'll give their cloak as collateral for a loan. But, but Israel's legal system says cloaks have to be returned at nighttime since it was functionally somebody's blanket in the cold of night. It's not happening. No, they're actually people, the wealthy, the, the, the powerful, those who, like think that they're still serving Yahweh, are actually spread, verse 8 says, they're spreading it out like a picnic blanket when they come to worship, is what it says is happening. And all the time they are actually drinking the wine that somebody gave to pay off their fine. This is a bartering system, and so somebody got fined, and they pay with what they have. Oh, I grew some grapes and made some wine here. So the charge against Israel, their war crime is that as a religious community, but then it, it's all tied up in one thing, and I'm here wrestling with you with it. Um, it's not just them as a religious community, it's them as a society, and them as a culture, even like their government. All of them are tied up together. Hosea's concern is that single-minded self-interest is destroying the vulnerable 
in this society. It's destroying them. Go ahead and turn to Amos 5. This is, um, gives a really good flavor of it. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about um, the book of the 12 begins with the book of Hosea, calling Israel, people of God. You have been unfaithful. You're like a harlot, an adulteress. You've been unfaithful to God. And so this society, we already know in the book of the 12, is not loving God with their heart and their mind and their strength. And now it's like Amos, who's a contemporary of Hosea, they're concurrent, um, is showing where this has led. This society who's not loving God, who's an adulteress, is also not loving their neighbor. This society is not caring for the most vulnerable, for the, for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, for the undocumented sojourner in their midst. But, but all the time, they're continuing to say, well, we're God's people. We're, we're God's nation. And they're relishing the prospect that one day, Yahweh's going to come. The day of Yahweh is going to come and bring judgment on all of them. Everyone else around them, these nations around us. But Amos, you can see why he's, why he's kind of unpopular. Uh, Amos is blocking their view and hold, by holding up a mirror to them. And he's saying... Verse 18 of chapter 5 says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if, I like this image right here, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him along the way. <laughs> Congratulations. Or, or went into a house and leaned up against the wall and had a serpent strike him, like out of, the, out of the wall, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. So you think that God coming and sorting everything out is going to be all sunshine and rainbows for you, but it's actually going to be hard and gloom and darkness. Like, you think God's coming to sort them out, them other people, those other denominations, those other churches, those other countries, those people that speak differently or think differently than you, but the coming day is going to surprise you. The people, like, like a bear jumping out while you're fleeing from the, like a snake jumping out from the wall. Whoever it is that you're wanting judgment for, Amos is holding up a mirror and blocking our view. He's saying, you, Jeroboam II, you northern tribes, you Brett Davis, you Daniel Martinez, you Joe Kirkendall. It, like God's coming to sort us out too. He keeps going right here. Verse 21, he says, it's God speaking right here. I hate, I despise, what does God hate? I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your hearts, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Gosh, the prophets, man. Like I read these words and they like put the fear of, fear of God in me, you know? Like Amos wants us to recognize that the worship service 
God wants is our serving the vulnerable. That's what God wants. He wants us serving. God is saying, I, if you are not caring about the most vulnerable, I don't care what kind of words you can string together, Brett, what kind of sermon you can deliver. I don't care what kind of song you're singing, New Life Manitou. Take away from me all that noise. It just sounds like a clanging cymbal, like a resounding gong. Love is what God wants, and love going public is called justice. That's what it looks like when love goes public and starts working its way into a society. Hear me. God is not condemning the wealthy just, just because you happen to have money right here. If only it was that easy, then we could just like empty our, empty our pockets, empty our bank accounts, and we'd be totally good with God. No, he's condemning something that's like actually much more nefarious than wealth in our pockets. He's condemning like a self-obsession that gets in our souls. It's like he's condemning those who care nothing for others and are single-mindedly self-interested. And he's calling all of us, whatever kind of resources we have, to be single-mindedly others-interested and say, what does it look like to help them in this society? Those people who do not think like me, who do not agree with me, what's it look like to help them? Martin Luther King Jr., it was his birthday this past week, uh, he recognized as clearly as anyone in recent history that the, the words of Amos, the words of the prophets, the gospel itself has to go public for it to mean <laughs> It, for, for it to mean a damn, is what I want to say. Like, I, I want, like, for it to mean anything, it has to work its way into our society, into our lives. He, he said it this way. He said, we can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our bodies, heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied so long as the Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and the Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. It's, it's difficult for most of us to like imagine or those of us who were alive to remember that Dr. King was profoundly controversial in his time. Like, maybe as controversial as Amos. And the idea of, like, signs saying for whites only or for, for hotels turning away people of color, like, that's appalling, rightly so, to, to most of us, I would think. Like, <laughs> some love has gone public in our society. It's been working its way into our society. But that language... 
that Dr. King uses, what he calls police brutality against people of color, that's something that people are still marching in the streets over. That's something that people are still getting into arguments, that people are still leaving churches over, God forbid. My point in bringing up Dr. King is that spiritual-sounding words that we come together in solemn assemblies and say words like righteousness and justice, they are just clanging sounds in the ears of many people around us and it according to Amos, in the ears of God himself until they start working their way into our society, into our public lives. It's not easy. Like, it's messy. It's tricky. It's, it's always been hard, is the point. It's always been controversial. It's always been difficult for love to go public. And none of the big issues of the day, like if Dr., reflecting on Dr. King, none of the big issues get solved in a single year or in a single decade. But we as the church, at this moment in time, we can help in at least two ways, if you want two ways to help. Number one, practice uncomfortable listening. Try maybe inviting that friend, it needs to be a friend, <laughs> invite that friend of yours that you know you disagree politically with and, th and they're thoughtful about it. Invite them out to coffee. That Democrat, that Republican. Like, and resolve to only ask questions, to only listen. <laughs> resolve to try to understand them. Try to recognize where they are trying to protect the vulnerable. Oh, it's dawning on me. You're trying, they're trying to protect the unborn. Oh, and they're trying to protect military and law enforcement and small business owners. Oh, I oh, I, they're trying to protect single mothers. That's what they're, and they're trying to protect undocumented immigrants and racial minorities and the working poor. And most of us would say, like, that we all care about those groups on some level or, or another. We all care about those groups, but we're disagreeing about who is the most vulnerable and how we best protect those people who are vulnerable. But my brothers and sisters, in this moment in our country, we as Christians have got to model for the world. Otherwise, our faith, I don't know what it's good for if we are not learning to listen to each other and to people who disagree with us. We've got to learn to listen because I cannot love until I learn to listen. I cannot. And I get it. We're going to have like fundamental disagreements about like some really big things. Like, like for instance, like what's the role of government in this? And like what's private citizens' roles? And like the church's role? I get it. We're going to have fundamental giant disagreements. But can I tell you some brilliantly good news? We can still love those we disagree with. We, like we can even like them. We can be friends with them. So can we please stop demonizing the other side? And I promise relationships will heal. Families will heal. We will start to learn from each other. We might even figure out like practical ways that we can start helping every category of vulnerable that we've just listed if we practice listening 
even when it's uncomfortable, listening to the other side, listening to the prophet. And if it's painful, that's a good thing. That means growth is happening. The other way that I would implore you is the people of God is to press into Jesus's family until serving becomes dancing. What? What does that mean, Brett? Oh, Brett, with his metaphors, his fancy language. Well, let me tell you what it's about. My family and I, we found ourselves, we found ourselves as the vulnerable. Uh, A couple of years ago, I wasn't on staff with New Life yet. I was just volunteering and I was grinding out a full-time job, um, but my hours got unexpectedly cut um, at work and I, for for like weeks on end, and a, um, a pastor and an elder with New Life made sure that we were able to make our mortgage payment. And, um, and now, in 2021, uh, my family um, is in a little bit better spot. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we hosted a, a couple for dinner. And uh, this couple actually serves in a ministry with New Life that uh, helps deliver groceries to people at higher risk of COVID and who are wanting to limit their exposure. And so they're kind of housebound right now. And they're serving, even though they're not like made of money. They don't have a money tree in the backyard. Even though money's tight, they're serving and their car was starting to go out. And so another couple in New Life said, well, that won't do. We, they're a little vulnerable. We need, we know about cars. We can, we can serve. And so they patched up their car. And Mr. Handy with cars is in a small group with Mr. Kindness. And Mr. Kindness actually regularly makes phone calls to a guy in prison who wandered in here from, from like, he's homeless and he wandered in, met, made relationships in new life. He's in prison now. And Mr. Kindness is making regular phone calls to this guy. It's like one of the few relationships this guy has. And Mr. Kindness actually like a, like a few months ago or last year, he got help from another guy in New Life. Mr. Tall, Dark, and Handsome is what I'll call him. And he, like, working on, like, his yard. And he's not, like, been, that, that guy's not been slouching in his life because he and his wife and his family, they've been foster parenting for over a year. And on and on and on it goes, serving and giving. And when someone becomes vulnerable, because we all are at some point, someone else comes in and helps them out and serves another person because the spirit of Jesus is teaching us all the dance of grace, of being single-mindedly interested in others. And so, my friends, lean in to the family of Jesus. Don't just casually come on a Sunday, make relationships, build friendships. I say, where can I serve? And it's not an instant fix for all the complicated things in our society. I get that. But we can model for the world what it looks like to start serving together, not as dreary obligation, but as a dance. If, I, if you feel overwhelmed by Amos's words today, I have really good news for you. The dance means that we as individuals don't have to do everything. Like we're a body. We can support each other. We can partner with each other. We can rely on each other's strengths. God knows you don't want me fixing your car. I can't do it. Like the church gets to dance together to help the vulnerable even when it's me and even when it's you. And as we do this, we grow in awareness that the vulnerable are not a problem to solve, but people to love. 
That's, this isn't a problem to solve. Amos beneath it all is just wanting, he's calling the people of God, love each other. Love each other, take care of each other. Sometimes the hurting don't need funds. Sometimes the hurting just need friends. I mean, if someone has material needs, James, the book of James would say, make sure you're doing something about those needs and asking how we can help. But often people need our company just as much as they need our cash. You know, like one, maybe this week, the invitation to all of us is to think of one person, one person that I could serve this week, that I could give myself, that I could be others oriented, be liberated from the shackles of being self-absorbed and be absorbed into their world for just a little bit. And Amos would say, yes, yes, you're beginning to dance, the dance of grace. That, that is sweet music in the ears of God. I invite you to stand right now. Go ahead and, if you're at home, you can prepare your elements. If you're in the room, go ahead and grab and get your elements ready. A band, you can come on up. Um, Perhaps today, um, I know that it's dense, the book of Amos is, the prophet. And perhaps today has made you feel vulnerable. Perhaps today has made you feel like, oh my gosh, there's such things. How in the world? And you know what? That's good. That's really good. There is much to do and we need to be aware of it. But let me give you really good news that this table is pointing us towards. God is the great servant of the vulnerable, including you including you, the living heartbeat of Amos's prophecy of his words. It came to fruition. It was fulfilled ultimately when Yahweh, the God of Israel, became one of his people as Jesus. And he came around people who were rebellious and treacherous and charged with war crimes and killing their siblings and vulnerable, people who were vulnerable to eternal death. And God comes among us to save us. This table this morning is like a tangible, touchable, tasteable picture that God comes to serve you. The only requisite is that you say, I'm vulnerable. I need you, Jesus. In John 13, Right before this meal, Jesus said to his disciples, he washed their feet, and then he said, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, I want you to wash each other's feet. I want you to serve one another. Serve each other like I serve you. God himself didn't come to just clean feet. This, What we're holding right here is the picture that God himself carried our exile, our death, our damnation on the cross. He carried it. And so as we hold these things, as we participate in this great mystery, we can be confident that God is not saying to us, he is not saying to you, away from me with the noise of your songs, with the mess of your life. No, No, this table is God coming and saying, I have come and I have carried all of the brokenness. I've carried all of the vulnerability 
And I've come so that you may receive my joy. And my joy, my utter delight is serving those in need. People like you. Won't you join me in serving those in need? And so Jesus, we recognize that you're here in this place and that you're calling us into the deepest possible life of wholeness and completeness and joy and love and dance eternal. And you're doing it by saying, I have served and I want you to serve. And so we remember how you served us, that on the night you were betrayed, you took bread. And having given thanks, you broke the bread and you gave it to your disciples. To us this morning, you give it. And you say, take, eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so this morning, if you're hungry for Jesus, if you're vulnerable, if you're hurting, Jesus is saying, I've come to fill you up. He's here right now, giving you his life as food for the journey. You may receive the bread. Likewise, when supper was over, he took the cup and having given thanks, he shared that cup with us, with his disciples. And he says, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so you're invited this morning to believe the gospel. Jesus looks at you and he says, this is for you. It's for you. It's for you, and I want to include you in the dance of grace. I cleanse you by my blood, and I fill you up with my life that you may cleanse the world and become my body and blood, my body for the sake of the world. You may receive the cup of salvation. And so right now, maybe just offer up a prayer Right now, hold out your hands if you feel comfortable and offer up a prayer of thanksgiving to Jesus that Jesus has done it all. He has become vulnerable that we might be made secure and that he is at work in this world through his body to restore all things to the Father, to the glory of his name. Praise Jesus in your heart and your soul and invite him to open your eyes to the ways that you can be his body to those around you. Jesus, we thank you. We praise you, not just with songs, but with our very lives because you are putting your life in us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen and amen. Let's sing praise to our God.